Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Pamela Nadell. Pamela <laughs> holds the Patrick Clendenin Chair in Women's and Gender History, chairs AU's Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies Collaborative, and is director of the Jewish Studies Program. She's a specialist in American Jewish history and women's history, teaches a variety of courses in Jewish civilization, and is the author of numerous books, including Women Who Would Be Rabbis, A History of Women's Ordination, 1889 to 1985, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. And she is the author of the recently published America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today past president of the International Learned Society of the Association for Jewish Studies. She lectures widely in the U.S., Europe, and in Israel. Her consulting work for museums includes the Library of Congress and the National Museum of American Jewish History on Philadelphia's Independence Mall. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today uh, via phone from San Francisco, where I gather you're in the midst of a very busy book tour, yes? Correct. <laughs> um, well, again, thank you for taking time. Um, so, to get started, I wonder if you can provide a little bit of a backstory to the book and how you came to write it. I came to write the book because I've been thinking about the subject for decades. And even if I go back to my childhood, when I think about how I read biographies of women, thinking that there was a, a biography series that for young children that was only about women, and of course there wasn't. I was just pulling all those biographies off the shelves. I was reading about Clara Barton and Dolly Madison, and I think I've been considering writing a big history of America's Jewish women for my entire life. Uh, I One of the things that takes me into the book is that I talk about these images that I have going all the way back to my great-grandmother from around the 19-teens, and she's wearing a scheidel, the wig a married woman would have worn. And she's as old-fashioned as they come in the early 19-teens when this was taken. And a photo of her daughter taken at the same time, my grandmother, shows her about age 14, and she's so she-she, she's got bows on her shoes. And I wanted to know as their clothing had changed over the generations, I wanted to know how the lives of these women had changed. And most of all, I wanted to know what it had meant to them to be Jewish women. Well, as the subhead explains, you also you cover this history from colonial times to today. And I'm curious in, in going back and finding out what those changes were, how hard was it to do the research that allowed you to sort of find these women's stories from such an early time? It wasn't as hard as you would think because a work like this rests on about four decades of scholarship in women's history that really burgeoned in the last quarter, a little bit more than the last quarter of the 20th century. And then a slightly shorter period of time, but also a couple of decades of terrific scholarship in American Jewish women's history. And I knew where to look for many of the stories, many of the people that I talked about, because I've been reading that scholarship for so much of my life. And also because there are extraordinary archival sources, like the American 
Jewish Historical Society today, which is where I read the letters of Grace Nathan, who's one of the women that I talk about from the colonial era. So I don't have family members that go that back that far in the story, but I was able to pair women like Grace Nathan, who lived her life as a wife and a mother and a widow and a grandmother, and impacted the smaller canvas of her family and her community. And I could write about her and then also write about her great-granddaughter, Emma Lazarus, who left a legacy to bring across American history with her words inscribed in the base of the Statue of Liberty, welcoming the huddled masses yearning to breathe free to these golden shores. And I was really struck um, by how Jewishness informs these women. And I think it's something that I think about in terms of um, my, you know, if I go back and and look at my family history or or look at the things that my grandmother and my mother encouraged me to do. And a lot of times I come back to saying, I think that these were just, it was my innate Jewishness, you know, the pursuit of education, the, the encouragement to go out and be independent. And I would love to sort of hear your thoughts about that in terms of, you know, to use that phrase, the narrative arc within this book. I love the way you talk about how it made you think about your own family, because for me, Jewishness is at the core of these women's lives. But I know that Jewishness means something very different across time and across um, the, uh, in space. And for some of the Jewish women that I, I talk about in the book, Judaism sat at the center of their lives, Sabbaths, holidays, living within a, a, a Jewish community, the Jewish women's organization, that defined who they were. For other women, Jewishness was much more incidental, but it still affected them. It defined who they married, it defined the kind of work they could do, the kind of work they were prohibited from doing. And then for other Jewish women, Jewishness was incidental, maybe not even important. Maybe they tried to escape from it entirely, and sometimes they did. And sometimes they discovered that it wasn't, a, it wasn't possible to escape because anti-Semitism would target them. One of the things that I tried to get at in this narrative arc was to understand the breadth and diversity of what it means to be an American Jewish woman today and in the past. And there's a long legacy there. Correct. Um, a really long legacy. And, and interesting to see how some of these women's stories played out from generation to generation, but again, I go back to some things that are so um, sort of, if I may, genetically encoded to us in terms of that Jewish sort of cultural legacy. So, you know, from women who were involved in social justice, uh, the labor movements, law, founding charities, um, et cetera. And I wonder if there are a couple of examples of women that you think are, you know, illustrate this idea? I, one of, what became clear as I was writing the book is that commitments to social activism have really stretched across the American Jewish woman's experience from the, from the earliest days. When I think about in the early 19th century, in 1800, just as this new country is really beginning to form, Rebecca Gratz and a number of other Jewish women in Philadelphia helped 
to create an organization with Christian women that's a benevolent association. There are poor people coming into their community. They want to help the poor. And then a number of years later, Gratz realizes that these women are often missionizing as they reach out to the poor, the Christian women in the organization. She never leaves that organization. She remains an officer in the organization, but she goes out and creates a host of Jewish organizations for the Jewish poor who are coming into Philadelphia. Um, one is called the Female Hebrew Benevolence Society. Gratz founds the first Hebrew Sunday School because Christian missionaries were reaching out to poor children on Sundays, and so she creates a Hebrew Sunday School for the Jewish children. And eventually she even creates the very first Jewish foster home, the first Jewish orphanage in America for the Jewish orphans left after the Civil War and those who have come um, as immigrants and whose parents have died. She begins that strand of activism, and it's much more on the local level. It happens in Philadelphia, and then it happens in other cities that are emulating what Gratz does. But then Jewish women's activism bursts out in a very large national way at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. The powerhouse Jewish women's organization, the National Council for Jewish Women, Hadassah, sisterhood arms of the various synagogue associations, they're all created in a relatively short span of time by the beginning of the third decade of the 20th century. And they, and they carry forward, because they're, they're masked, so many women, they can carry forward a much larger agenda than just caring for the local poor. And it's interesting, I think, you know, again, I tie this back personally, but I think of how it in some ways to find my grandmother, um, uh, my paternal grandmother, who was very involved in Hadassah. And this became a way to both be sort of an assimilated Jew in New York City um, and also to do something that helped her feel as though she was part of a larger community and, and was doing something that was beneficial. Right. That's, I love the, that you, t you see it personally. I've heard, by the way, as I've gone around talking, I've heard this a lot, that the book reminds people of their grandmothers, helps them understand the world that they came from, and to understand that Hadassah was not just a social organization. Hadassah was a way of helping Jews at home and around the world. And I'm going to go back to, you You mentioned the word, the challenges that a lot of these women faced. And one illustration of that is, um, no pun intended there, um, the Gallery of Missing Husbands, which when I first heard about the Gallery of Missing Husbands, I found it fascinating. And it really talks about, to me, it, it again, illustrates the way in which women who came over an immigrant, you know, an immigrant woman, Jewish woman, who comes over without her husband, has to settle in a new country, no language skills in many, you know, many times. Um, it's fascinating to me that they had to strike out on their own. And then how this gallery of missing husbands came about and, and, and what it really tells us about this experience. It shows us how painful the process of immigration was. The Gallery of Missing, Missing Husbands was created early in the 20th century. It's published in the Forward, the Fovitz, and it, the 
those those photos were photos of either men who had abandoned their wives in America and sometimes men who had left their wives overseas and then they, they would write these women would write to what was called the National Jewish Desertion Bureau a Jewish organization founded to help these women and they would and they would say send me my husband who is missing he is somewhere in New York and of course What's so heartrending is that in so many of these cases, these women didn't really want their husbands back. They wanted the get. They needed the Jewish divorce document that would enable them to be free and in the future remarry and carve out a happier ending for them. And we know that in most, most of the cases, very, very few percentage of, of cases where the reunification happened, most of the times it was just they, because of Jewish law and because they were left agunot, that they needed to track down these men. It's so interesting because when I think about it, I imagine that these were mostly arranged marriages in the old world. And in the new world, this is some, somewhat liberating for a woman <laughs> if you say that they wanted to just get out of the marriage. It's, right. Yeah, circumstances but, but also, inform life, you know. But it was also so much driven by poverty. Mm. One, I think one case I talk about where the husband leaves his wife a letter and $2 on the counter and leaves and says, I will send for you and the children when I can find some place where I can make a living. We don't know if he ever did. We don't know if he ever managed to make a living. This, is, this was really, marital desertion was a problem of poverty. The well-to-do could afford to get divorced, mm -hmm. but marital desertion was because of the poverty. So if we look generation to generation, you have a wonderful quote, um, and if I may. Years ago, a Jewish woman asked, what's the difference between a bookkeeper and a Supreme Court justice? You include this really great quote, um, and it goes sort of like this in the book. Um, Years ago, a Jewish woman asked, what's the difference between a bookkeeper and a Supreme Court justice? One generation quipped Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. To me, this speaks volumes, and if I may, I'm going to read one other quote from the book and ask you to speak a little bit about this. I'm going to recount this from the book, and it is Bredy Friedan at a rally in Bryant Park, New York, and which she exclaims, In the religion of my ancestors, there was a prayer that Jewish men said every morning. They prayed, Thank thee, Lord, that I was not born a woman. Today I feel, feel for the first time, feel absolutely sure that all women are going to be able to say, as I say tonight, thank thee, Lord, that I was born a woman for this day. That's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's such a powerful statement. So what, you, what you've done is you, you've drawn out two of the myriad of Jewish women who ended up being in the forefront of the wave of feminism in the second half of the 20th century that created a revolution that reverberates down until our day, and that changed women's lives. And I, I love the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. Um, somebody actually told me that she brought the book to um, the Supreme Court Justice and, and that she saw that I had used it, and I was, I was so excited by that. And what is so stunning about the Fredan quote is that she claimed years later in Jerusalem where she told the story that she didn't even know that she knew that prayer. But Fredan talks about how she felt that the anti-Semitism that she sensed when she was growing up in the Midwest 
violence and the exclusion that she felt as a Jew sensitized her to the exclusion that she felt as a woman and that it drew her to the feminist movement and to writing the feminine mystique and to leading the way along with many, many others to change the world for for women, for the better. So I do, I'm, I'm very careful not to use too many quotes in the book. I understand that readers don't want to read a string of quotations, but these two were so powerful and so evocative that I had to include them. And, and again, I think that they're, they are really important. And if you look at the two individuals, I mean, I think of Betty Friedan as being someone who was loud and bold. And to have her quote that prayer was pretty profound. And then I think of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as sort of quietly going along with her life. Just she, she worked through things and she pushed through them in a very quiet way. Yet again, both are so tied to that Jewishness that we talked about earlier on. Right. So one of the, you'll notice one of the photos in the book is a photo of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at her confirmation. Not at her confirmation hearings, Mm -hmm. but sitting next to the rabbi at her confirmation at her synagogue, the East Midwood Jewish Center in Brooklyn, New York. The the photos are just fabulous, too. There's something about just paging through that little section, and it's like, huh, wow, these were these were all strong women who in their own way changed all of us and or allowed for us in many different ways. So I, I, I wonder, um, when you finished the book, did you end up telling the story or the history that you imagined you would set out to, or were there surprises and redirections along the way? Well, there, there was a major redirection. The original manuscript was twice as long, and I was, I, I was trying to write something simultaneously for my academic colleagues and also something that I was hoping would reach a much wider audience. And I realized that to tell the story and to get it down to, you know, really under about 270 pages, this long history, that I would have to make some very hard choices. And there are so many wonderful stories that ended up on the cutting floor or that have gone off in slightly different directions. I'll tell you one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talk about Rosa Sonnenshine, the editor of The American Jewess, and in 1879 she founded what we think is probably the oldest Jewish women's book club in America, and that was all I could say about it in the book. But I subsequently got the papers of that organization. You were asking about sourcing before. Um, and their records, their minutes going back to 1879, this group is still meeting today in St. Louis at Temple Emanuel. And I think that speaks volumes about Jewish women's desire for learning back in the 19th century and extending all the way forward to the 21st century. But it was a story I couldn't include all the way in the book. Instead, I wrote for a magazine called Paper Brigade. I wrote a, a little article about what they, who they were, what they were reading, and why they have lasted this long. It's, uh, it's funny that you mention that because I'm thinking of proposing this book for my women's book group. You will make my editor very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll make the women in my book group very happy <laughs> as well. I hope so. It, it just there, There's so much to unpack in here, 
And I think, again, it prompts all sorts of conversations, large, small, personal, uh, internal dialogues, what have you. Um, so again, the title of the book is America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today by Pamela Nadell. It's available online at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org and elsewhere across the country in bookstores and online. Um, thanks again, Pamela, for taking the time and for telling the story of America's Jewish women for all of us who are America's Jewish women. And, uh, um, and also, we look forward to welcoming you. You are delivering the 2019 Melinda Rosenblatt Lecture here at the Yiddish Book Center on April 28th. And I look forward to being there. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Mass. I'm Janet Engelson, bookkeeper at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 8, Collecting Stories, where Krista Whitney, our Oral History Project Director, talks about her experiences gathering stories and the art of listening. Seid mehr stark und gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.